Well, this morning, let us turn in God's word to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 8 through 12. This is a wonderful little section of scripture. Every once in a while as you're reading through both Old and New Testaments, you come across a verse or a section of scripture that seems to kind of define the Christian life in a nutshell. A good summary of what we are supposed to be living out as Christians, and this is one of those sections. This is a section that is worthy of your study in the future, and this is a section that is worthy of your memorization. It is. It is really remarkable. A couple of things before I begin this morning. First of all, I want to say that you will notice in the book of 1 Peter, and today is a good example, that Peter had a special like for, a special affinity for the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great teaching. If you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is probably Jesus' longest recorded sermon. The longest edition of it is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And we see again here Peter's like for Jesus' teaching. Also, it's interesting that this is the second time in the book of First Peter that Peter quotes from Psalm 34. And I just find that interesting that he seemed to really like that specific passage of Scripture. And I fully realize that he wrote under the full authoritative inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But in that context, Peter's no different than us. We have certain parts of the Bible that are special to us, that mean something to us. And it appears that that was true of Psalm 34 for Peter. This is what he writes. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Wow. What a great challenge for us this morning. God's word is so incredible, so amazing. It really is. Our first point this morning is unity of mind. Peter begins this section of scripture with the word finally because he is finishing a teaching section that he began in chapter 2 and verse 11. So he is not saying finally the book is about to end or the letter is about to end. No, he is saying finally in this particular, particular teaching section. If you remember 
And this takes us back a ways in the early part of chapter 2. Peter said, we are strangers and exiles on this earth. But let us live in such a good way that people in the world will see our good deeds and give glory to God. And then he says, and we've gone through this the last few weeks, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But then he says, be submissive to the government. Be submissive to your employer. Follow the example of Christ, Christ being the supreme example of submission. Two weeks ago, we saw wives submit to your husbands. Last week, we saw husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. So this is a strong context of submission based on the example of Christ himself. And we need to know that as we look at this passage, this is a strong context of submission based on the example of Christ himself. Well, Peter's first statement is the most important. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Finally, all of you, all of us, let us have unity of mind. The term unity of mind means let us be like-minded. And everything else he is going to say in this text is driven by unity of mind. Now let me tell you what it does not mean and what it does mean, so that we are clear on this. Unity of mind does not mean, it does not mean that all Christians will agree on everything. It does mean we will be like-minded in the gospel of Christ. It does mean that whatever our differences and disagreements may be, we come together in unity of mind on the gospel of Christ and what it has accomplished in our lives and what God is going to use it for, for his purposes in the world. I want to read a quote for, for you. It's an extended quote. It's not going to be on the screen because it was just too long. It's from author and pastor Ray Pritchard. And this was just one of those times where I read something where the author just nails it. He just absolutely nails it right here on what unity of mind, as Peter uses it here, means. So please listen carefully as I read this for you. He says, for most of us, being like-minded is what happens when you agree with me. But that's not what Peter has in mind. He is not calling us to agree on everything. That's not possible, nor is it desirable. Inside the church, we disagree on many things. We could start a huge argument if we decided to fight over politics, how Christians should vote, the best Bible translation, how to school our children, what shows to watch on television, which clothing styles are acceptable, how to spend our money, birth control, acceptable entertainment, our preferred worship style, the music we listen to, the books we read, the best way to discipline our children, and so on and so on. The list of things we disagree on would be very long indeed. Peter is calling for unity, not uniformity. We don't agree on everything, and that's okay. 
in the early church. They disagreed over eating meat offered to idols. They disagreed over the keeping of the Sabbath. They disagreed over which days to observe and not observe. Disagreements in the church are nothing new. We don't all have to think alike or act alike, but we do have to be like-minded. And that can only happen if we all have the same focus, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2.5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The church is the body of Christ, and in Christ and with his power, we rise above the things that divide us. In Christ, we have a unity that transcends secondary issues. We can disagree on many things and still live in harmony with one another if, if we keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think very carefully about that with me this morning. We can disagree on many things and still live in harmony with one another if we keep our focus on the Lord Jesus, excuse me, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to read one more quote for you because this is so important that we get this this morning. It comes from the book, The Compelling Community, where God's power makes a church attractive. Some of you may remember that during local evangelism month last year, this is the book that we emphasized. It is a book that we are working through with our elders at this time. It's a book written by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. This is a quote from that book. In gospel-revealing community, Many relationships would never exist but for the truth and power of the gospel because two people in relationship have little in common but Christ. And so this community reveals the power of the gospel. While recognizing our tendency toward similarity, we should aspire toward community where similarity isn't necessary where no strand of similarity in the congregation explains the whole congregation. That kind of community defies naturalistic explanations. I want you to think of that first statement. In gospel-revealing community, many relationships would never exist but for the truth and power of the gospel. Here is what they're talking about in the book. They talk about the fact that in many churches like ours, there are groups that naturally gravitate towards one another. It may be young mothers who meet together to talk about raising children. It may be families who like to get together because their kids are all around the same age. It may be men who like to get together and talk about or uh, do fishing and hunting because they like that. They have this natural uh, tendency with one another. Or it may be groups of men and women who love to talk about sports and watch sports. And they say there's nothing wrong with that in the church. That's a good thing. But their point is this. Unsaved people do all those things. People outside the church have all those kinds of groups. 
There's nothing gospel revealing about that. Great example. Next Sunday, all kinds of Christians will get together to watch the Super Bowl. Nothing wrong with that. I think it's a great thing. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. All kinds of unbelievers are going to get together and watch the Super Bowl. What they're saying is gospel-revealing community, true unity, is when you have people who have totally different preferences and likes, totally different personalities, totally different viewpoints, totally different backgrounds, and they get along with one another because of Jesus Christ. These people have nothing in common with one another. No natural tendency to hang out together or to do things together, but they come together in this thing called the church and they love each other. And they fellowship with one another, not because they see things the same way or have the same interests and hobbies, but because they have been saved by Jesus and they love him with all their hearts. We are united by Christ and Christ alone. And everything, as I said, everything else in this passage flows from that first statement. You know what unites us? You know what unites us as a church? It is the fact that we were once dead in trespasses and sins and now we are alive in Christ. You know what unites us as a church? Our sins have been forgiven as far as the east is from the west. You know what unites us in Christ? It's that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what unites us as a church? Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a savior. That's what unites us as the body of Christ. And so the rest of the passage is living out this gospel-driven unity, and that is our second point this morning. Peter lists six things that characterize a Christian who has been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, you could be none of these things if it were not for the gospel if it were not for your faith in Christ. You would be none of these things. But because you know him as Lord and Savior, these are the things that ought to characterize our lives. The first one is sympathy. Excuse me. Because we know Christ as Savior, because... We have been forgiven because we were, are no longer under eternal condemnation. We have sympathy for people, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but not just there, but also in the people that we meet in the world. Sympathy is this sense that I so feel your hurt that I want to do something for you. I loved what one writer said. He said, sympathy is your hurt in my heart. Your hurt in my heart. 
let us be a people of sympathy. God has had sympathy and pity on us, and so let us show sympathy to others. Secondly, we are to be characterized by brotherly love. Brotherly love. We are brothers and sisters in Christ because of the gospel and the gospel alone. That is why we are unified in a very special way. The term brotherly love literally means one born from the same womb. And spiritually speaking, all of us are born from the same womb. We are all born from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. If you've been watching the news lately over the last three or four weeks, you are aware that there has been this controversy surrounding the Academy Awards, the Oscars. The controversy is the fact that there, are no, there is no minority representation for the second straight year for the major nominations for the Oscars. One of the most outspoken people in this controversy has been Will Smith. Will Smith was not nominated. He was not nominated for his performance in the movie Concussion. Because of this controversy, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has already taken steps to try to bring about more diversity in the future. And Will Smith said this. He said, what they've done is a good thing, but it is just a first step in a long, long process. But then he said this, and this is what caught my attention. He said, we will work this out. He said, we will work this out as fellow actors and actresses. We will work this out as fellow directors and producers and screenwriters. And then he said this, he said, it is not a civil rights issue, it is a family issue. And we will work it out. That struck me. We may have differences and disagreements within the church. We will. We have different viewpoints, different tastes and preferences, as I mentioned. But let us work those things out as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us work out those differences as family. We're not like the world. Let's not do things like the world does. Let's work it out as family members working together. Let us have brotherly love. The third thing he mentions is a tender heart. Let us be characterized by a tender heart. I love this little phrase little statement, it means that your heart is just so tender towards God, towards his word, and towards others. Just an incredible tenderness towards God, towards his word, and towards others. It is a tenderness that comes from the deepest part of your being. When the Greeks talked about their emotions, they believed that all of their emotions came, emotions came from their bowels, from their intestines. And that's how they would describe their emotions. That's the only way they knew how to do it. It comes from the deepest part of 
who I am. One writer said this, I thought it was great. He said, it's like a belly laugh. He said, sometimes you hear or see something funny and you chuckle or you smile, but sometimes, and, and we've all experienced this, sometimes you laugh so hard you can't stop laughing. Have you ever had that? Where you are laughing so hard that tears are running down your face and you just can't stop laughing. It strikes you as so funny. Well, from the deepest recesses of your being, Peter says, have a tender heart. The fourth is a humble mind. It means to be or to have God's accurate evaluation of yourself. Remember, you're, you used to be a sinner, lost and condemned, rebellious against God, but you have been saved by his grace and his mercy and his kindness, and that's the only reason you are a Christian. So be humble. It means to have such an attitude that I don't have to get public recognition. It's okay if someone else gets the credit. It's okay if people don't know that I did that. I am humble. I don't brag about myself. I don't brag about my children. I brag about Jesus. I brag about my Savior. John MacArthur says humility is arguably the most essential, all-encompassing virtue of the Christian life. Wow. For it's in humility, it's in humility that we are teachable, that we are willing to be obedient, that we are willing to do whatever God would call us to do. The fifth, the fifth thing that is to characterize a Christian who has been radically changed by the gospel is not repaying evil for evil. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. It means do not seek revenge or retaliation. Though people clearly wrong you, treat you unjustly, and we looked at this before in the example of Christ in chapter 2, you choose you choose not to seek retaliation or revenge. Instead, you forgive. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. The great theologian Augustine once said this. He says, if you are treated by an evil man with injustice, Forgive him, lest there be two evil men. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote on this. C.S. Lewis says, Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have someone to forgive. Isn't that true? Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have someone to forgive, until someone wrongs you until you're the one who has to forgive a deep pain in your life. It is easy to preach about, teach about, and talk about forgiveness. 
it is a hard thing to exercise. The sixth and the most difficult of all is the last one, or the sixth one, and that is blessing others. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Literally means that you might inherit a blessing or receive a blessing. So you're not seeking revenge or retaliation. Instead, you are forgiving and, and you are blessing others. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount in the shorter form in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. In verse 9, the word bless is actually where we get our English word eulogy from. To give a eulogy. To bless literally means to give a eulogy. It means for those who have cursed you, you think of a way to praise them and to say something kind about them. That is hard. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Eulogize your enemy. But to this you are called. And God will bless you is what it means. And God will bless you. He will bless you when you do this. Well, in verses 10 through 12, Peter quotes from Psalm 34, which restates what he just taught in beautiful and poetic fashion. This is very common in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. It is what a wise teacher does, the master teacher does. You state something, and then you restate the same thing in a slightly different way for emphasis and retention, and that is what Peter is doing here. And he starts out in verse 10 by saying, For whoever desires to love life and see good days. You want to love life? You want to see good days as a child of God? Then do these things. Do these things. And if we put together the end of verse 9 and the first part of verse 10, it says you want to be blessed. You want to live a blessed life. You want to love life and see good days. Then do this passage. And that's why I say to you again, it is, this passage is worthy of your study and worthy of your memorization. So whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him do the following things. First, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. It means two things. It means to be totally committed to the truth and to truth-telling. And it means refusing to say bad things about other people. You know, we could just stop right there, go home and be like dogs with our tail between our legs. 
none of us are doing this like we should. None of us are doing this like we should. Put myself at the top of the list. It is a commitment to truth and to truth-telling and a commitment, a commitment to not saying bad things about other people. Next, he says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Again, these pithy little sayings are just full of content. When he says, let him turn away from evil and do good, it means you will be tempted on a regular basis with perfect opportunities to do the wrong thing and you always choose to do the right thing, the thing that pleases God. You will have all kinds of perfect opportunities, temptations to do the wrong thing, but you resist and you choose to do what honors the Lord. Then he says this, let him, let this man, this woman who desires to love life and see good days, let him seek peace and pursue it. This is an amazing little statement. Seek and pursue peace. Seek and pursue peace. Implicit in the phrase is the analogy of the hunter aggressively tracking down his prey. It means to do this with aggression and passion. It is the picture of a hunter who is so focused on his prey that he puts all other things aside. Let him seek peace. Let the man of God, let the woman of God seek peace and pursue it. Jesus said in the sermon, on the mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Oh, the church, every church, every church desperately needs men and women who will seek peace and pursue it, who will say, yes, we have our disagreements, yes, we have our differences, but let us, for the sake of the gospel, because of the gospel, as a result of the gospel, let us live in unity and peace with one another. Well, this ends with a great encouragement to all of us in verse 12. You may think, I don't know if I can do these things. These things seem too high and lofty. They seem unrealistic. How can God expect us to live out these things? Well, verse 12, first of all, remember this. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. What a beautiful statement. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And in this first part of the verse, it means it in a very positive, comforting, strengthening way. Everywhere you go and in everything you do, know this. God is right there with you to help you, to empower you, to forgive you to pick you up when you have fallen. He is always there every second of every minute of every day. God's eyes are on the righteous and, and his ears are open to their prayer. Is there any greater blessing for mortal men and women 
than to know that the king of the universe is always watching you and always listens to your prayers. Do not think that your prayers are not making a difference. They are making more of a difference than you will ever be able to understand. And this is an encouragement to keep praying and praying and praying. And then he says this, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Another encouragement to us. When you see those people doing evil out there, know by faith they are not getting away with it. They are not getting away with it because the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You may look around at the world and you see what's happening with ISIS or what's happening in Syria or what's happening in other parts of the world. You may see what's happening in our own country and be so discouraged and saying, Lord, have you forgotten us? Like Israel of old used to complain, Lord, where are you? Lord, can you not see what's going on? Do not say such things because the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God will bring every evil person to full accountability either in this life or in the next and you can count on it, you can bank on it every single day. So be encouraged. Well, that brings us to the end of this wonderful little section. And the reminder is to all of us, remember who you are in Christ. Remember what Christ has done for you. If we had a million years and a million lives, we could never pay God back for what he has done for us. Don't ever forget that. We could never give enough or sing enough or pray enough or work enough to pay God back. Our indebtedness and our gratitude to him will last for all of eternity. But there is one thing we can do every single day. Every single day we can live as forgiven people, eternally humbled and grateful for God's love and mercy. Let us live as forgiven people, eternally humbled, eternally grateful for God's love and God's mercy. Let us say over and again, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. It is only because of Christ that we are who we are. We're going to close in just a minute with that wonderful little chorus, All to Us. That's what Jesus wants to be. He wants to be everything to you. Without Jesus, we have no salvation. Without Jesus, we have no forgiveness. Without Jesus, we have no relationship with God. Without Jesus, we have no unity. Let us unite as brothers and sisters in Christ 
radically changed by the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, help us to have gospel-driven community and gospel-driven unity in this church. Naturally, there will be, Father, we know there will be things that we disagree on and have differences about. But let those secondary things give way to Jesus, to all that he accomplished for us in his perfect life, his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Father, remind us today and every day that Jesus is everything and without him we have nothing. In his name we pray. Amen.